There are many parts of Scripture that astound me and amaze me. There are those places where I, I read something and if I'm really engaged with it, I, I keep coming back to it again and again, trying to grasp what's being said. One of those places for me is the 10th chapter of John's Gospel. In this as this chapter unfolds, Jesus is talking about sheep and shepherds. He's talking about the difference between him, the good shepherd, and all the other wannabe shepherds. And he makes the difference between them, and he talks about how these other shepherds, you know, they, they're, they're hired hands, they're really committed to the flock, something happens, they run. And he says, that's not who I am to you. And you get to verse 10, and he makes this astounding statement. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have a rich, satisfying life. Some translations say, I've come to give you abundant life. It's that phrase that stops me in my tracks. That Jesus comes so that we might have a rich, satisfying, abundant life. And the thing about that that's so amazing to me and fascinates me is that I think one of the great struggles of our human nature is to believe that's true. We spend so much of our lives fighting with God about that. When, when life doesn't happen the way we want it to, when we feel disappointed, when we are disappointed in God, when there are troubles and difficulties and struggles, one of the first things that we wrestle with is believing that God really wants us to have this kind of life. That God's intent for his creation is blessing. And we wrestle with that. And the evil one keeps whispering in our ears, like he did Adam and Eve, that's not really who God is. And all of life, and really in one way, is to is for God to convince us that this is who he is, that his desire for us is to bless, to bless us. But the other part of that is how God goes about blessing us. And and the source and the ways in which God brings blessing into our lives as his people. And that brings us to Psalm 133. Because Psalm 133 says, it begins, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. And when you come to the end of this, he says, it is in this life of unity as God's people that we find the blessing of God forevermore. And I think one of the great struggles of the church is to make the connection between unity and the great blessing of God. We have a tendency to think, well, unity is a good thing. We're happy for unity. It's just not vital. We can exist without unity. We can experience all of God without being 
interested in unity. But I think Psalm 133 and other places in Scripture are telling us unity is more important, more valuable than we realize. I'm fascinated by the fact that this song of ascents, this song that the, that the, um, the Israelite people sing on their way to worship, on their way to the great festivals, is a song about unity. Excuse me just a moment. Turn that off a second. Here they are on their way walking together to worship. On their way to Jerusalem. On their way to celebrate these great festival of God. And they're singing about unity. And they're saying this is one of the greatest things that God could ever do. This is one of the greatest blessings of life. Unity. You think about the things in your life where you say, this would be so awesome to experience. This would bring joy and blessing. When I think about things that are wonderful, when I think about things that are good, when I think about my life being blessed, think about those moments. And the psalmist says, that's what unity is. That's what it feels like when, we, when God's people experience unity. And to to make that point, the psalmist says, let me give you some metaphors. Let me give you some pictures of that. And here are the pictures that the psalmist gives us. This kind of unity is like precious oil poured out on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. And you and I read that and go, really? What does that even mean, right? You're going to pour oil on my head? I'm going to be sitting here drenched in oil? I don't know. I got to tell you, that doesn't really sound like good and wonderful to me. It sounds kind of sticky to me when I think about it. Of course, you have to understand their context. So you go back to the book of Exodus. Go back to the book of Leviticus. God brings his people out of Egypt. They build the tabernacle. And God says, now when you come to worship... I'm going to assign Aaron and his family to be priests. They're going to represent me to you, and they're going to represent you to me. They're going to be the people who stand in the gap. And you're going to come and sacrifice. And Aaron and his sons and their descendants are going to take those sacrifices, and they're going to to offer those for you. And they're going to be the people who are going to help you worship me and help you know me and experience me. And the fascinating thing about all of that is that God initiates that. The Israelites don't come to God and say, okay, you've called us to your people. Can we have a relationship with you as your people? Can we have, can we have a way of knowing you and you knowing us? That'd be really great if we could. I, that's the last thing on their minds. God says, before they have a chance to even think about it, I want to be close to you. I want to be intimate with you. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. And the the whole system of worship is how we're going to do this. And the priests are going to be right in the middle of all that happening. And so when they come to worship, when they come to sacrifice, when they come to pray, when they gather together and the priests are standing before them... The priest is there representing the presence of God to them. And it is a joy to them to have that experience. And how does God get all that started? He says to Moses, all right, 
Bring Aaron before all the people, and I want you to anoint him with oil. You know, we anoint with oil and put a little thing on the forehead. We ought to try this. Maybe that would be fun. You know, of course, we'd have to clean up afterwards, right? Do this outside. But, you know, we put a little speck of oil on him. They pour oil on the head. And Moses pours oil on Aaron's head. And the oil throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons why we do, we anoint people at times when we pray for them, particularly for healing. Because it's, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit being present as we pray. And the oil being poured on Aaron's head, and the same thing on, on uh, Samuel does for Saul and David, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And God is saying, this is something I have done. I am here. I am present. This is a good thing. What I love about this, this psalm is that the psalmist takes it far beyond what Leviticus describes for us. Leviticus says that Aaron stands before Moses and Moses pours oil on his head. The psalmist says, here's what unity is. Unity is pouring oil on Aaron's head. All that's, all that's involved in that, all that that means. And he just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. So much oil. You don't get this description in, in Leviticus. So much oil that his hair is drenched, his beard is drenched, his clothes are drenched, and there's a puddle of oil all over the ground. And I think the psalmist is saying, when you think about the blessings of God, when you think about the God at work in your life, as people in the world, you have this abundance of God's blessing and spirit. And that is what it feels like to live in unity together. But he has another metaphor too. It's not enough, the pouring of oil. He says, it's like, it's like the dew on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, the tallest peak in that part of the world, snow-capped year-round. And the, and the waters of Hermon, the dew and the, the moisture of Hermon, flow down into the Jordan River. And out of the Jordan River, the, the, the land of Israel and the deserts are watered. And I think the psalmist is saying, when you live together in unity, it is like the life-giving presence of God for you. Without the waters, without the dew of Hermon running into the waters of Jordan, giving life to the people of Israel, there would be no place to worship. There would be no place to live. It would be impossible. God has provided this life-giving water. And the psalmist says that life-giving water the joy of that, the blessing of that, is what it's like when God's people live in unity. And the psalmist is so excited about it. It's only three verses, but he's so excited about this vision of God's people living in unity. He finds it hard to describe. And these are the best pictures he can come up with. And they're powerful symbols. I just think we wrestle with seeing it that way. Interesting thing about these two metaphors, it's sort of ironic that, that the two metaphors the psalmist uses to describe unity are two things that don't mix. You know, 
Uh, Tim Tennant, I was reading something from Tim Tennant about this, the president of Asbury Seminary. And he was talking about that, and I thought, that is true. That's profound. You know, oil and water, they don't mix. You know, you can, you can stir them around. The oil keeps rising. They make, you got, if you have a little, a little oil from your car in your driveway and it rains, what happens? The water beads up on it. They don't mix. You can stir that cup, but in a few seconds, they'll be dividing again. And Tim Tennant makes the point that he said, I think uh, this is the psalmist's way of saying unity doesn't mean sameness. It means the same kind of spirit in our diversity. Because God is a God of diversity. God loves diversity. God creates diversity. God embraces diversity. All you have to do is look around at creation. All that God has made, you see diversity. I love John's picture of, of, in, in Revelation about heaven and the vision that he gets there. And, and he says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, worshiping God. How does John know that there are people from every language, tribe, people, and nation? Because he can tell the difference. He can hear the difference. I think sometimes we think of the new heaven, new earth, that our eternal existence, we're all sort of clones. And John says, that doesn't look like that to me. And unity is not unanimity. It's if we have to agree on every little petty thing. And it's not uniformity, that we all have to walk exactly the same way and think exactly the same way. Unity is having the same mind. The same spirit. It's relational unity. It's the kind of unity that's focused in Jesus. The kind of unity in which we love each other. In which we care for each other. In which we have the same purpose in mind. And that is following Jesus. Giving our allegiance to Jesus. It's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about the church as a body, and he, he makes it so clear. He says, not, we're not all ears, we're not all eyes, we're not all toes, we're not all hearts. We're all these things. And because we're all different, it makes a functioning, healthy body. C.S. Lewis talks about how, you know, when you go to a performance of an orchestra... Nobody's going to pay money to go hear an orchestra in which every single instrument plays exactly the same note. I mean, you couldn't give away tickets to that. What we go to hear is all the different instruments playing all their different notes, but they do it in the same rhythm. They do it at the same pace, in the same place, under the direction of the same conductor. And when you hear that, what you hear is harmony. The New Living Translation uses that word instead of unity. It says how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. I like that. It is this bringing together of all our different notes into this beautiful music under the direction of the same conductor. And no one, no one goes off on their own. All of them follow what the conductor wants to do. 
when I was in high school, I was singing church choir. And, uh, you know, my thought was, you, whenever you're singing, you sing loud as you can. You want to carry it, right? Uh, want people to hear you. And I, our youth pastor was in the choir. He stood next to me. And one day he said to me, you know, Wes, he said, when you sing in a choir, the point is not to sing as loud as you can. The point is to blend in. Like, oh, okay. He said, what you need to do is to think about, you listen to the other people around you and you match your voice to theirs. You match the volume of your voice to theirs. You match, you match the tone and the tenor of your voice to theirs. Because the point is not for people to hear you. The point of the people of, is for people to hear the choir. And that's out of the choir that we make beautiful music. And there's a place for solos from time to time. But the church is about being a choir. And the music of the choir. And that's hard. Because what that means is we have to, we have to adjust ourselves to other people. And that, that impinges on our freedom. And none of us want anything to impinge on our freedom. We want to do what we want to do the way we want to do it. However, whenever we want to do it. But the call of the gospel as the church is to say, I, I, I change how I operate to some degree in order to be a part of the bigger picture. The greater good. It's not sameness. It's a call to unity in our diversity. And that means that we, we realize this is not easy. He, the writer says that we are called to live together in unity. You know, you know it would be no miracle at all to live in unity if we didn't live together. Right? I'm sure you could call that unity. It would be a facade. But if you don't have to interact with each other, if you don't have to spend time with each other, unity is no big deal. But when you are together, when we spend time together, when we connect with each other, when we are in community, then unity becomes difficult. It's a challenge. But that's the only place unity can happen. Real unity takes place in community. There's no other way. And the call of community is to say, I care as much about them as I, as I do myself. I'm as, I'm as involved and interested and, and accountable to them as I am to myself. And we connect ourselves. That's hard. It's a challenge to us. Because our, our first priority often is, I want my rights. And the call of unity is to give up our rights for the good of the whole. Now, sometimes we do that by saying, well, you know, we're going to disagree. We don't see eye to eye. That's going to happen. You can't help that. That's just life. And, and to ignore that is, is not unity. That's denial. And the gospel never calls us to denial. But somehow in the midst of our diversity, we have to figure out how we live together. Now, sometimes we say, well, I guess we just agree to disagree. And I've always thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. And one, a friend of mine said to me, you know, I, I don't think that's a biblical concept. Because de- agree to disagree means, ulti- really, in reality, I'm right, you're wrong. And if we work at this long enough, I'll convince you that you're wrong and I'm right. And so we're going to agree to disagree because we both think we're right. We both think each other is wrong and we're at an impasse. Maybe it'd be better to think, not we'll agree to disagree, but I need to listen to what you're saying. 
I need to hear you. Because agree to disagree implies I've figured everything out. And we haven't. None of us have figured it all out. And there are always people we can learn from, always people we, through whom, from whom we can grow and develop. And we need to listen in a spirit of learning and submit to each other. And to say, there are things that I'm sure you can teach me. Not, you know, I don't have to change what I believe is my core beliefs. And, and I don't have, to, I don't have to, to change the things that I believe are right. But I also have come to the realization that I don't know everything either. I haven't figured everything out. And God has given you some insights that I haven't yet received. And I need to hear those to be a better follower of Jesus. And that kind of mindset, that kind of humility and submissive spirit is the crucible in which unity develops. Are we all going to agree about everything? Of course not. That, that would be unrealistic. I, don't, I think that would be crazy. But we are always coming together with the mindset of everyone else has something to teach me. God has something to say to me through everyone in some way or another. And that mindset is how we develop this this life, this community of love and unity and grace. It's it's that kind of spirit that, that we see ultimately in the eternal kingdom. When we were singing, the church is one foundation, I was struck by the last lines of the last verse. And it says, O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high, may dwell with thee. I find that fascinating that he's describing the universal church and the eternal kingdom of people who have gone before us and who are meek and lowly. The spirit of vulnerability, the spirit of, of listening and learning and, and surrender and submission. That's what the eternal kingdom is about. We sometimes wonder, you know, why don't people in the world get along? Unity in the world and culture will, has to start in the church. If God's people can't get along, how will we ever expect anybody else to get along? It starts with us. I think that's part of what Jesus means when he says, how will people know you're my disciples? Because you love each other. You care for each other. And people say something's different about the way those people connect. I want to know more about that. It's a challenge. In the passage we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul, you know, right after his greeting, he jumps right into it. You know, he, he doesn't mess around. He's saying, look, I hear the divisions among you. What, do you, what is this about? How can, how can there be divisions in the church of Christ? Some follow Apollos, some Paul, some Peter, some only Jesus. And he, are these people divided? And he gives them this whole thing about, you know, the, the, the importance of, of unity and trying to get rid of their divisions. And then you come to verse 18 and he says... That the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. And I I sort of always thought that Paul's changing 
his subject matter. And if you're in your Bibles, probably it has a, a different heading there, starting a different section. And I see those things separated, but it just struck me recently that they're actually connected. And I think what Paul is saying is the people who, who are divisive, the people who are promoting these divisions, see the cross as foolishness. Because the cross is about surrender and submission. The cross is about giving up our rights. The cross is about loving. The cross is about humility. No wonder the cross looks foolish. Because the whole heart of divisions is arrogance. And Paul says, folks, don't even, you don't realize how serious what you're doing is. It's, you're, you're saying the cross is foolish and that's leading you to destruction. But we who have recognized that the cross is the way of the gospel. We've seen the cross as the power of God to unite us together. In Jesus. When Jesus ushers in his eternal kingdom, there will be unity. It's hard to envision the eternal, our eternal existence as anything but unity, right? I mean, it, it wouldn't be heaven if we're all fighting with each other. But we aren't li- we won't live in unity. Because we can't do anything else. We'll live in unity because we want nothing more than Jesus. Everything about our being will be absorbed in worshiping Jesus. And one of the ways we will worship Jesus is not only loving him but loving others. That great commandment that is an eternal commandment of the kingdom. And in the new heaven and the new earth. Our focus will be so much on Jesus that we'll be filled with the spirit of Jesus and we will love each other as Jesus loves us. And the question for us is what would prevent us from wanting to live that now? To know the blessing and the joy and the wonder Living together in unity now, like we will then. Every week we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that prayer, we're saying, God, let the unity of your kingdom to come be the unity of our lives now. And that's why we come to this table. If there's anything that grieves God's heart, maybe the most grievous thing to God is that through the history of the the church that this table has been a point of division and divisiveness for people instead of a point of unity. Because at this table, we come on level ground. This is not a table about who's deserving and who's undeserving. This is a table for everyone who recognizes we are all undeserving. It's a table of grace. And we're welcome to this table to experience and to, and to, to feed on Jesus. 
Because we recognize that anything we are, anything we've ever accomplished, anything we know is because of the grace of God. And we come to this table in humility and thanksgiving and surrender and sacrifice because of Jesus. When you read this psalm, he's not really explaining how we achieve unity. He's simply saying, let's celebrate. Let's be God's people who experience the wonder and the joy of unity together in God. And that's my prayer for us. That we will so highly value unity like God does. That we will begin to see more and more that unity The love of Christ defines who we are as his people. Father, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. Forgive us. Forgive us that we take this call to unity so lightly. Open our hearts that we might love you and love each other and be absorbed in your grace and your mercy. May your blessing rest upon the bread and the cup which we receive today and let it be food for our souls through the grace of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.